This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is all mining all the time. No, not really. But we are going to talk about mining today. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, is Dr. Anirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. What happened to mining? We're going to talk about mining. We said last week we would, and despite the fact that this morning I had to say to you, what was it last week we said we'd talk about? You said mining. went, ah, that's right. So we are going to talk about mining this week, but our listeners will have to wait. How's that for a teaser? That's that's great. Stay tuned. We'll talk about mining first, though. We've got a pretty big roll call of stuff to get through, mate. We've got a lot happening in the Mm -hmm. market and around the markets. So let's kick it off. Um, Just a quick teaser. We're going to talk about the big macro. We're going to talk about NAB, Flight Centre, West Farmers, mining, and... Which company is now worth more than AMP? Don't answer. I know you know. Oh, okay. I'm going to keep that for our listeners as well. That's a good question. Let's get into it. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's start with the big macro, mate. There's kind of a bit going on around the markets, and it's all focused on next week when the RBA may or may not finally cut rates. Now, we talked about the 0% CPI a couple of weeks ago. Some believe, with some justification, that's put the frighteners up the RBA. They're so worried about deflation that we might yet see an election campaign rate cut, something we haven't seen since 2007 in John Howard's last campaign when Kevin Rudd won the the prime ministership. And NAB is saying, well, don't do that, please, because that'll really hurt us. Meanwhile, UBS says that house prices are this will make you happy, mm. show no signs of bottoming out. And they're now worse than the falls during the GFC. So lots and lots and lots of macro stuff all swirling around. Mm-hmm. We're the first to say that most of it probably doesn't matter, at least not for long-term investors. But the interest rate one is kind of interesting, right? So for, for the longest time, the RBA sat in their hands. I think it's the longest period without a move in rates, I think, in the RBA's history. Mm-hmm. They might yet be forced to go. If they do, when 25 basis points is kind of the generally accepted move, they're hoping it'll stop the, the, the risk, the spectre, to use the jargon, of deflation. Now, how bad could deflation get for the Australian economy? So, okay, first, I think it would be a bad move <laughs> to cut the rate, okay. given that our rates are higher than most of the other places, yes. and we borrow a lot of money from overseas. <laughs> we do. Um, and, uh, yeah, there are other things that will happen, right? I mean... The um, a lower rate might mean a lower dollar, which is you know good for exports, yes. but it's also not good for people wanting to spend money on travel and buy sure. things, which are going to cost. You sound more. like a bloke who's going overseas, sir. <laughs> well, well, like, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying stuff. Um, I you, I uh, so I, I think it's that. Uh, I I think you know, I think the hard way is mm. to just you know, do this unwinding of this binging that people have done. And we have all done this collectively as binging, you know, let's binge on the property prices that have gone up. Let's binge on the equity we have got. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the binge-a-thon, right? I mean, you you know, you need to unwind the (laughs) binge-a-thon. And anything to help the binge-a-thon further is only going to, I think, you know, do do you want a slow decline or do you want a bust, right? I mean, that's (laughs) the question. I think that's maybe the question also Mm -hmm. RBA is thinking about. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I'd, I'd say with a little higher probability that RV is not going to cut rates. Yeah, um, that's that's my my thinking. Um, yeah, uh, so I'm, I, I'm I'm in the not rate cut yeah. camp. I you know what I've so for, I, I'm a, I'm in the the ABA should raise rates before now camp. Frankly, I've been calling for months, maybe even years now, for higher rates more quickly. I think the emergency levels that we've been at were way too low and unsustainably low. 
The problem the RBA has is they didn't do anything then. And as you say, they now got themselves into a position where this is not actually about house prices at all. This is about – so deflation is one of those things that no one really understands particularly well because we haven't had deflation in the longest time, right? Where We've come out of 20 years of kind of you know inflation out of control, and then the last 10 or 15 years we've got inflation under control. The risk is that we end up in deflation. Now, here's the problem with deflation, right? If I say to you, look, you know, why don't you buy something now? Uh, let's pick uh, my car, right? Let's pick, buy my car off me now. You're going to say normally, well, okay, that seems like a good deal. It's a decent price. Okay, I'll buy it. Inflation might be a couple of percent, but that's fine. I'll buy the car. If if we have deflation, in other words, prices are going to go down over time, you're going to say, well, hang on, I'm not going to buy your $10,000 car today. I'm going to wait six months. I'm going to pay nine and a half grand for it because we know prices are going to fall in the future. Now, if that's the case, what happens? Everyone stops spending on the big stuff. So no one's going to invest any money on plant, infrastructure, equipment, large assets because, I mean, you've got to buy food, of course, you can do that. But why bother buying anything that's going to be expensive if you know that in six months' time it's likely to be cheaper? And once deflation sets in, that really can put a hole right through the middle of an economy. So I kind of get, you know, for the long time I've been saying ABA should increase rates. I'm going to say that they missed that opportunity, but right now I think they have no chance but to decrease rates because if we get another quarter of negative, or there wasn't another quarter, it was exactly flat, but if we get a quarter of deflation, they're on the hook now for all of a sudden an economy that may be looking to kind of, frankly, fall in a bit of a heap. I don't know they can afford not to do anything really in that environment, even though I wish they'd had rates higher to start with so they can put rates down to a more reasonable level. I kind of feel like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, that's that's true. But I mean, inflation is pretty low all around the world, right? I mean, yep. okay, it's like you know between one and two percent in right. most places. Right? But that's and not the, deflation. That's a whole different uh, story. That's, that's a whole different story. But you know, it's it's close to zero. It's not negative. It's only one number mm-hmm. that we have seen. Do you act on that really? Can you afford not to? That's the question. I I don't know. Like I I mean I, I think the thing is that if you know if you get a negative number, and then you act, maybe mm-hmm. that's enough. Maybe, maybe. And that's, that's certainly the view of those who say they keep, should keep rates on a whole. Yeah. We will see. Interestingly enough, though, in this rate talk, NAB CEO has come out and I, I won't say desperate, but kind of looking a little bit desperate, saying, no, no, please don't cut rates. It's bad for our margins. Um, at some point, then you know, the, the, general, the general idea with banking, and it's largely proven out by history, the higher rates are, the higher bank profit margins, because they've kind of got more room to go. The lower rates are, the lower the bank margins, because they just simply don't have enough room to play to kind of get cheap deposits. So Napsio um, Kronikin coming out saying, well, maybe you could do more on tax or fiscal policy or something else, but please leave rates alone because it's really going to hurt our bottom line. Should we be worried about the bank's bottom lines in, in a world of lower rates? Uh, I mean, I, there's a couple of things here. So, so I'll take a counter view and I'll say that, you know, one of the things in NAB's uh, results and actually in the NZ's result, uh, report was that the um, mortgage delinquencies are actually mm. on the rise, right? So which means people are not able to make those payments. Yep. If you cut the rate, actually, maybe they'll be able to actually make, <laughs> make those <laughs> That's payments. That's true, right? That's right? true, yeah. So it's actually yeah. helped that. So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, something is going to hurt, but <laughs> something's going to help. For. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's not, you know, again, yep. uh, I don't think you should cut rates yet, okay. uh, but I think um, the argument that, you know, if you cut rates and it's, it's bad for my margins, I think that's a very <laughs> poor argument. Isn't it? It kind of feels, it's a, it feels a little bit desperate, I've got to say. It's, it's, it's a desperate argument. So, so uh, and I think, you know, they're missing the bigger picture that maybe it helps somewhere else and therefore yeah. it's not that big a deal. Do you, do, you do, do you want write-offs on your book or do you want to actually have less margins? Man, when, when that's your choice, you know you're in some trouble, right? Yeah, that's a, that's now, a bad choice. Now, speaking of which, so this is the other, the other story from NAB this week. NAB slashed its dividend, not by a couple of percent, not by a little bit as people were expecting, but they took 16% off the dividend. The interim dividend, we call it in the, in the jargon, the half-yearly dividend, was 99 cents last year. This year, they've only declared 83 cents. And some concern, or some, frankly, forecast, that that'll be the full-year dividend as well. That's a pretty significant 
you know, chomp out of the dividend for a bank that hasn't been doing it all that well. Got wrapped out of the knuckles pretty hard at the the Royal Commission. Cost them a couple of a couple of senior execs, a, a chairman and a CEO, no less. What what do you make of NAB's dividend cut, mate? Is this too little, too late? Is it the right medicine for the right problem? How do you think about the banks in the wake of this particular cut? So, so I think it's it's a good move. Like uh, I mean, the in in the case of NAB, There's a whole like, lot of people on on uh, dividend incomes are yelling no, at you right but, but, now. I mean, I mean what, what do you want? You want no? <laughs> do, you, do you want the bank to exist and pay you a dividend in the future, or do you don't want? Uh, you know, do you want dividend now and not the bank in the can, future? Can, can I have option three, please? Uh, this like this, is, this looks like the two <laughs> options to me right now. <laughs> so um, I. I I think this, you know, taking the bitter medicine now seems yeah. to be that. I mean, they've inflated their share count. You know, people do share buybacks. They've been printing shares to, uh, you know, through their dividend reinvestment plans and yes. so on. So as you and they're ripping that up again, by the way. Yeah. So if, if that's happening, then mm-hmm. you you have less mo- You have more shares, and you have the same amount of money to go around. You've got a problem. So mm-hmm. they're cutting that. They've also got to pay, thanks to uh, the Royal Commission, they've got to pay a few fines here and some, you know, uh, exit payments to, I guess, um, former CEOs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, they've got a few payments to make as well, right? So capital yeah. requirements, um, spreading the income or the cash income that you've got across the dividend, across the shareholder base. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's a prudent move. Um, would I like it if I'm a shareholder? No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. I right, hate right, right. it, but I I think that was a good move. Yeah. Like from a management point of view, well, I mean that's a sane move, right? We can we can we can call that uh, lots of jargon so far. This podcast, the old sustainable footing, right? They're now yeah. on, a, on a dividend level that they kind of feel like, in theory, as long as I think it's horribly bad and it still could, they feel like they can sustain this yeah. level of dividend on, on ongoing basis. They've kind of realised, hey guys, we've been living on borrowed time for too long. Time to pull the reins in a little bit and say, look, you know what? We probably maybe we can afford ninety nine cents. Maybe we can't. Maybe we run into some trouble. Maybe we don't. Let's just cut it now. Get some more cash in through the dividend reinvestment plan, and just basically try and right the ship a little bit. Give us a bit more powder, dry powder, when it comes to things that might come down the pike, including more costs from the Royal Commission, including a weaker economy potentially. You don't want to be going out cap in hand when things are already tough, right? You want to go and do it in the relatively good times. Now it's probably a pretty decent time to give it a go. I agree, mate. Uh, this is going to be a bit of a bit of a downer start to this podcast because. It's, it's, it's not. I mean, how is nine percent fully franked or something like that? Or, you know, if you if, if you add the franking, isn't it nine percent? Yeah, well, yeah, nine point seven percent. I think. Yeah, is it, and how much is it now? Now that's what it is that's, now. How's <laughs> that bad? How is that? I mean, nine percent income. That's not bad. I mean, that's That'll great. Pay the bills. I mean, that's great. That'll I mean, pay the bills. Uh, I don't know. As you said, I, I think that's good. <laughs> the problem is, I now have to talk about flight center. <laughs> Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We kind of started with, we started with the economy and rate cuts and then we yeah. had deflation. Yeah. They're into NAB and NAB's problems and house prices. I want to have something positive to say, but I kind of don't yet because Flight Center released its results or updated its results this week. Mm. The results were pretty ordinary. And the, the problem, the, the culprit was the Australian leisure traveler. We're simply not spending enough money at flight. Everyone around the rest of the world is. But Australians have stopped spending money at Flight Centre. Is this a kind of sign of the times, to your point about the, the kind of mortgage delinquencies? Is this a case of people jumping online and booking with Webjet and everyone else, Expedia and those guys, booking directly? Why is Flight Centre struggling in its Australian business? What's going on? 
Um, I mean, I'll be hypothesizing here. So, I mean, you know, you know, I was going to make some jokes and say that, you know, Flight Center hit this turbulence or it hit an air pocket. <laughs> <laughs> a rough landing. <laughs> rough landing, almost like, or we can say crashed. But I mean, you know, it's what making $300 million and it's proposing to make $300 million in profit. Shareholders, please put your uh, tray tables up and put your seat back in the upright position. <laughs> we are going to make a hard landing. Now. But $300 million. Flight 10 speeds, please be set up for takeoff or landing or something. So, um, okay. So, uh, from my small, you know, sampling is, is, is a, from my small sample, I have not seen people actually cut back on holidays. Yep. I actually know everybody's taking holidays and they're mm -hmm. going to places and stuff like that. But maybe the, maybe the, the problem is real in the sense that, you know, if you're, if people maybe are doing less overseas holidays, maybe that's, the, that's what I think one of the right. things that Flight Center is saying that makes sense. You know, if your dollar has weakened and, you know, you're going overseas and maybe you're going to America and you, you know, it's just harder, a little yeah. bit harder. Yep. It's not impossible. It's a little bit harder. And then, and those things on the edges maybe matter that and then maybe people are not feeling as flush with cash maybe some people are on negative equity mm. um, so all those things I think maybe add and then you know maybe in this business um, if everybody like you know if the if the airline is making less because it wants to sell the seats then mm. you know everybody's is progressively making less on that margin right so maybe that hurts and maybe there's more you know, a combination of things. Maybe mm. people are just going and searching on Webjet or Expedia or, mm. you know, Booking.com and, you know, whatever else exists out there, right? Yeah. Um, thousands of alternatives. Um, um, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a tough one. I mean, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, you know, you're still making 300, what, <laughs> $350 million. That's <laughs> not struggling for a quid, are they? Let's yeah, be that's, honest. They're not struggling for anything here. Um, also, the other thing to keep in mind, I mean, the shares fell, but the shares were also priced at a pretty reasonably high PE, though, like mm. for 20 plus PE or something like that, right? I want to call that out, actually, Matt, because that's, you know, we don't, we, we can't talk about this a little bit on, on in passing, but it's where you've got to be really careful about the business and the stock. Yeah. Right. And, and, the, the expectation, the, the, the investing is an expectations game, as it should be, as it must be. The future is what it's all about, right? So if we think forward and say, well, how much am I going to pay for flight center shares? That's going to depend on what I expect the future to look like. And generally speaking, the faster you're growing, the more you're going to you prepare to pay for shares because, hey, I'm getting more income in the future. I should be, you know, if I'm getting a dollar a year for the rest of my life, that's different if I'm getting a dollar this year, then a dollar ten, then a dollar twenty, then a dollar thirty. I'm going to start paying more for that second income stream because it grows in future, right? That's that's exactly how the market should work. And there's a big difference between is flight centers business in any trouble? No, absolutely not. It's in ruddy good health, but is it growing fast enough? A as fast as it wants to, probably not, knowing screw Turner. But secondly, the, the share price assumes a level of growth, and this is where there's a big, big, big divergence. You can pay. Uh, I mean, it's hard to pay a low enough price for a terrible business, but you can you can buy a mediocre business for a really really cheap price and do well. Yeah, and you can pay way too much for even the best business, maybe not the best business, but one of the best businesses in the world, because simply, at some point, everything's about investment, right? And so there is that sense of, you know, we talk about flight center as if as if the business is somehow in well, we don't necessarily, but people are somehow in trouble, right? Flight center's terrible performance, blah blah blah. And it's, it's not in trouble, right? And it's not even really a terrible performance. I mean, it's not growing as fast as it would like to. Again, the company would like to, shells would love it to, but that's very, very different. And, and this is the key because I'm not saying, by the way, they're off the hook or even that shells are off the hook. It's just important to remember there's a very, very big difference between the company itself and the price you're prepared to pay for the shares. That difference is, is where, frankly, investment fortunes are made and lost yeah. if you pay way too much for a, for a even even even, a, even just an average business, right? Like a, or even a good business, but just to be paying well over the odds. Woolies comes to mind, right? 38 bucks a share. 
was it four or five years ago? Um, fell yep. to $20 after that because the margins were simply unsustainably high. Now, yep. Woolies was never in any trouble. It was doing fantastically well as a supermarket. It's still Australia's biggest supermarket business, all that stuff. It just wasn't delivering the sorts of growth and margins that investors had a, come to get used to, and B, expected in the future. And that's the problem when you extrapolate stuff. You've got to be very, very careful to make sure you're paying the right price for the right business. I want to ask you a quiz question here. And you, the answer you're is six, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. Let's move on. All right, know, ask do, me your quiz question. Do, do you know how much uh, is the total sales on a trailing basis for Woolies? Oh, I used to know this. I, it, I, I worked at Woolies years ago. I will now, I'll, oh, geez, I'll say $32 billion. I think it's in it's somewhere around fifty billion. Oh, so, wow, so I mean, okay. my, my point really is that that yep. business is not in trouble. Really. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, we are buying a lot of stuff that's from right, Woolies. That's right. There you go, fifty billion bucks. That's that's not a bad little. Uh, I, I think on the top change, of right? my head, I haven't checked, but well, I think it's well, fifty billion. You can't ask me a quiz question and not check it and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Jeez, tough crowd. <laughs> Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, mate, I, so I talked about I talked about some bad news early on, and we kind of talked about flights mm. and other things. Let's go to a bit of a bit of good news at least, excuse, at least for now. Mm. AMP. Well, I'll start with AMP. Right? I'll start with the bad news, get that out of the way, and then hopefully we can then move on. Mm. AMP came out this week and said, "Well, look, people are still taking their money away, but trust us, we'll be okay by 2022." That's a um, long way away. Isn't it? For, and with no guarantee of success. That's kind of one of those, you know, talk about kicking the can down the road. Mm. It's like the football team rebuilding. We're rebuilding for 2022. Just stick with us. We'll, be, we'll get there. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. I am not a huge fan of AMP, but interesting this week, partly because of AMP's woes, partly because of the excitement factor of this other company, one of these businesses just overtook AMP in market cap stakes. And that business is another kind of related business, if I draw a really long bow, it's in the financial services sector. And this is Afterpay, the buy now, pay later poster child, is now worth more in total than AMP. It blows my mind on both scales or on both counts. AMP was once this massive, it was back in the 80s, it was the only national name in financial services, effectively. I mean, NAB was around, Commonwealth Bank was around as a government business. The other banks were larger. I mean, Westpac was the Bank of New South Wales. Um, you know, St. George was its own business, IMB, State Bank, all these things were, were state businesses. AMP was the national name in financial services. It had every opportunity to capitalize on all of the trends we've seen ever since. You know, in the last 30 years, it should have it should be the biggest business in Australia by a decent margin by now. Unfortunately, we can't exactly say that because it's done exactly the reverse. And Afterpay has taken over, has taken the crown. It is now worth more than AMP. Again, we can kind of talk on either direction there. Let's, let's start with AMP. It, given this kind of, you know, currently low price, are you tempted at all to have a look at that and say, well, there's a price for everything at some point. Maybe the pessimists have taken over. Is AMP worth buying yet, do you think? So, you know, you know what? I'm I'm not a value investor, and I'm definitely true. not a deep value <laughs> investor. Um, uh, in my experience, uh, I don't get those things right, and I, I just... <laughs> I just stay away. Right. Um, and and, and just, there's a price for it, but, you mm. know, I don't know what exactly that price is. Right. And, and so I pass. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So then let's go to Afterpay. Afterpay, the very, very, not, not, could never be accused of being a value investment. So maybe this is one that's more in your wheelhouse. Does AMP deserve a market cap that's greater than AMP's? 
Well, I mean, you know, again, so it it still matters. You know, you need to have a good sense of what AMP should be worth, mm. which which I, you know, Fact, I'm, I'm, that's fair. That's fair. yeah. I'm not in a position, but is afterpay? Right, the story is much more exciting. If you just directly compare them. Okay, just yeah, pretend, okay, pretend you don't have okay, to worry okay, about okay, all the basics. Yeah, you know, right, okay. <laughs> just, just you know the nuances. Theater of, theater that, of the, the mind here, yeah, mate. So we can make it up ourselves. Fine. The nuances <laughs> don't matter," said Captain Phillips, and well, we, and, 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 we, and we move on. So put it this way: AMP is worth six and a half billion bucks. After is worth more than six and a half billion. Is AMP? Oh, sorry, is Afterpay really worth seven-ish billion dollars? Yeah, and you, I, I guess maybe the way to think about this is that AMP probably has a net income. <laughs> maybe still positive. I don't know if it is positive or not. Uh, uh, or you probably have to make a few adjustments to uh, one-offs and underlyings and okay, stuff. But you, and might, you maybe you can get there. Okay, maybe. adjusted one-off uh, special. Uh, Basically, that's uh, how you get there. In, yeah. Okay. Well, Afterpay <laughs> does not have one of uh, any of those things. So uh, yeah. So here's the thing, right? Afterpay is a disruptive company. Yes. And uh, you know, I've been on the on the f- fence or on the other side of this for a long time. But I think mm-hmm. you know one of one of the I think the, the mistakes here is that it, technology enables a lot of different things, and you know technology enables sort of exponential growth of different mm. you know of uptake of different things of new opportunities and so on. So so I think Afterpay is a company that is using. Um, technology revolution to mm-hmm. create new opportunities, right? And it's taken it's taken by a storm here in Australia, and uh, uh, you know they've made some very good uh, moves in the US. Mm. the The American market is you know at least ten x, maybe more, bigger than uh, bigger than our market, right? That's big. That's big. <laughs> so they have a big market opportunity. They've got you know a young um, founder, owner, mm-hmm. leader mm-hmm. in 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 the driving shoes, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in the driving seat. Sorry. And um, you know, and it's a product that consumers or its users actually love, right? This is one of those things, right? Because the likes of Flexi Group has been out there for years. Thorn's been out there for years. It's not. It's not like there was no opportunity to. Those were hated. Well, that's right. Yes, I yeah. mean Flexi Group had was Flexi Rent originally, and there yeah. was the Certigy Easy Pay brand, which Certigy as a name. I, whoever came up with that should be fired. I never allowed to yeah. invent, invent a name again. But. The, You've been able to, you know, the whole Harvey Norman, 50 months interest-free. Yeah. These kind of ideas are really, really old old ideas. Yeah. As you said, the Flexi Group shares have been in the doldrums for the longest time because people kind of hated the idea of this kind of, well, I'll call it by now, pay later. It's a little bit different, but effectively same kind of idea, right? Take it home today, pay it off over the next X number of years or whatever. All of a sudden, Afterpay comes along. Not only does it capture the investor's attention, it captures consumer attention in a a really fascinating, fascinating way. I, I've never used Afterpay. I don't think I'll ever use Afterpay because, frankly, if I've got the money, I'm not going to bother trying to pay it over three fortnights or three weeks. We're just because I just I can't be bothered, and the, the the difference in cost is nothing. If I'm buying a fifty buck pair of jeans, the interest I save in my offset account is probably you know twenty five cents or something. So I'm not going to bother. But it, it, people just love the hell out of this thing. So so I think one of the things that we I think we underestimate is the power of removing friction. I think this okay. is really underestimated. I think what they've done is made. It really frictionless to a get an account, a get the borrowing power from them without you know much you know you you press a mm. few buttons and you get it. <laughs> um, it works on your phone seamlessly. Yeah. Um, you know they they made the experience so easy. So I was going to ask you: is it is it removing friction, which I agree with you by the way, or is it just they've made it they've almost gamified this whole idea? The fact it's on the phone, so it's like Apple Pay or Google Pay, right? Yeah. Like I use Google Pay, and I kid myself that it's convenient. 
But then I think, well, I've got the phone in one pocket and my wallet in the other pocket. I could pull out a card as easy as use my phone, but I use my phone and I'm sure part of that is me just feeling like it's kind of fun and interesting and kind of cool to use the, t- the phone rather than the, the card. Like, I'm really serious. The, the, the effort of both is exactly the same. There's no more or less friction with either payment. So, but, see, but still, a, I feel I, like I'm, yeah. I'd rather use one because I feel like it's more fun or interesting or something that kind of leads me to want to do it. Is that, is that the afterpay well, effect? I, I, I think, you know, you know like use the Google Pay example. I think that I, I would say it's, again, friction removal because, you know, I... I, the, the cards that I have on my Apple Pay, yep. I do not actually physically have them in my wallet. Right. I've just thrown them away. But I actually have both. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm, I'm literally carrying right now. I'm picking out of my well, pocket. But, but you don't. Mine, my but, wallet, right? But you don't need to. But I could. That's what I'm saying. But why would you? Why would you do it? It's, it's so easy. <laughs> I go to the drive-thru. Yeah. And, and I, you know, McDonald's drive-thru, let's use this as an example. Yeah. And I just, you know, tap off my watch and I pay and I move on. No, I understand. What my, it my, is my, secure. My, but my point it's is. brilliant. If I have both already, if I have them in my pocket now. Friction. Life is all about removing friction. But I could, it's not, it, you there's no do, extra friction no, of either. You, you can go from Sydney to Melbourne on a, on a bullock <laughs> cart or a horse cart. You could walk. Why do you take the plane? <laughs> you know, it's like no, one no, of those my, things. My point is I've got them both in my pocket right now. Yeah. The act of paying with either the phone or the card is literally the same. There's no less friction, right? For me right now, I happen. you don't carry your wallet. That's cool. I carry both. and you know, I still use my phone because I think for me, the kind of gamification, the appification, the kind of cool factor is worth something to me well, intrinsically, right? If I'm, if I'm honest with myself, the fact I'm paying with the phone is partly just kind of so, being a bit of a So, so back to Afterpay, like comparing with, say, Flexi Group or something else yep. or Harvey Norman, there's no really credit checks that, you know, they're doing everything online yep. automatically, quickly. You but know, even, but even like FPOS, right? I could, I could use an FPOS card. Or not me. No, I have no, Afterpay, but, but, but in this case, people are actually borrowing, right? I mean, there is, this is basically bringing forward... You know, you're buying power. So you reckon there's literally people who couldn't have bought the jeans otherwise? Well, there are some. Right. There's some that for some it is cool. So, all right. I don't think I, maybe I'm never going to get Afterpay. Is it <laughs> worth $7 billion? That's my question. Well, uh, okay. So Afterpay, I would say, is a risk investment, which if it pans out, if it, you know, if it becomes the, uh, the I don't know, let's use an example. If it becomes the Visa or MasterCard mm-hmm. of the paying later, yes. then it could be worth a lot more. But if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bicycle. It's <laughs> <laughs> very possible. So, what's what? Are you are you confident? Are you comfortable? Are you optimistic for afterpay, or do you think the market's going to be carried away? Well, I, I'm I'm optimistic. I'm I'm I'll, I'm said, let me put it this way. I am cautiously optimistic in the sense that I think it's a risky investment for anybody who owns it. Right. Um. You need to. I mean, anybody who owns it needs to realize this is a very high risk investment, which you know has you know it could be a multi multi bagger, mm-hmm. or it could crash in half. Right. Okay. And. Again, if you if you're looking at that sort of um, opportunity, mm. if you if you can go up three, four, five x from here, if it goes up, you know, three, four, five x, you know, still only a thirty five billion dollar company. Again, thirty five billion dollar Australian, uh, which which you know, if you compare to some of the other finance or financial services companies of of today's age, it's still it's you know relatively similarly sized or smaller, right? So I, I don't know. I think I think. There's a good upside potential here, good multiplier potential. It's a very high risk investment, I would say, and uh, you know, I would just say watch your allocation. Basically, you know, I mean, this is not a company that I would mm. own a lot of, yeah, because um, of that risk. Yeah, nice. And if it goes up multifold, then you know, owning a little bit is probably enough. It's pretty solid. I'm probably not going to buy Afterpay. I've got to tell you, mate, but I may well be left sitting in the the gutter while you ride off in your brand new Tesla Model S. You, you should just buy some <laughs> Apple shares. Let's start oh, there. Oh, God. Here we go. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M.
Mate, let's move from the sublime to the something less. We, we talked about West Farmers as we opened up the, the, the podcast. And we talked a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it was even last week. It feels mm-hmm. like a long time ago. West Farmers tried to buy Linus. That didn't quite work. Undeterred, CEO Rob Scott now made a bid for Kidman Resources from, from mineral sands, from rare earths, to lithium. Speaking of Teslas, it is all of a sudden all about mining for West Farmers. And this is kind of... I mean, West Farmers has always had some degree of kind of commodities exposure, right? They had, they've had mining for the coal mining for the longest time. They've had some exposure to things like industrial chemicals, mm. but lithium mining is a pretty big jump. Even even rare earth mining, this is at best I can say. Well, they're staying true to some sort of form. They're having some of their exposure on their diversified investment company to mining broadly, or I can say this is supposed to be the bottom draw conservative century-old stock that most mum and dad investors put in the bottom drawer because it's going to be a stable, solid performer, not shoot the lights out, but do okay. And all of a sudden, they're getting to lithium mining, where the prices of not only the commodity, but the shares have been all over the joint over the last couple of years. Is West Farmers throwing off the cloak of conservatism, or are they simply trying to diversify themselves into a bit of something just to keep that spread of investment returns coming? You know, my first thought when I read this was that uh, maybe they've got too much money to spend. So I was thinking, <laughs> uh, I was thinking of writing an email to them saying, you know, how about you give me some? What you would know? you do with it? What would you do with it? <laughs> Other than buy yourself a Tesla? Oh, I'd, you know, I'd buy a boat, maybe. <laughs> so you're not going to invest it for them. You're just going to spend it. <laughs> no, of okay, course. Okay. Like, I mean, <laughs> I think that's much better use. Maybe, dear I'd, West Farmers, please give me some cash. Yeah, and I will spend like it. it. On, I'll spend it at Flight Center. It'll help Flight Center. <laughs> so that was my first thought. I said, well, I don't know. These guys are really itching to spend some cash. Was my. Yeah. Mate, just quietly, the amount of money I spend at Bunnings, if they sent me some money, I'd probably only spend it at Bunnings. It's probably good for the share price. So some sort of virtual circle there. Just send me some more cash. I'll buy some more stuff from Bunnings. The shares will go up. Everyone's happy. So I don't know. It's it's one of those things. Like I mean, maybe they're very competent. I mean, the the thing is that there aren't many competent Mm -hmm. mining companies. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean... Uh, Woolies as well, uh, sorry, um, Rio yeah. uh, and, you know, BHP, maybe South 32, but who else? I mean, you know, it's with, you know there are not many of them, right? So, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I, I just think lithium, right? Like, I, I know lots of lithium using lots of electric cars. I get the trend, but man, like, it's just, this, this reminds me of the old graphene boom, the old nickel boom, the kind of... It, I, I, well, the lithium-ion battery um, yeah. requirement is probably going to go up a lot. Oh, yeah, so, totally. I mean, so that's, that's true. But, but I that's, a, that's the demand side, right? If you find a bit more lithium around the world, the price still comes back yeah, to but, some but sort lithium of... is not rare. Yes, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> so lithium is not... It's not like, you know, it's hard to find lithium, yeah, yeah. right? So, I mean, you can go and dig... I mean, because at some point, there's there's some... You've got to be able to get it close enough to a port. It's got to be accessible enough at low enough sure, cost. But, sure, But I take your point, right? It's not exactly... It's, not, yeah. it's like rare earths. Rare earths yeah. aren't actually rare, yeah. so, uh, nor is looking. You know, I, I don't know. Can you... When you be able to compete with a, you know, um, a Chinese miner in right. in China, right, right, right? Probably all the batteries are going to be produced, right? I mean, you know, that's th- those are the sort of things. So Crazy, I I, I don't know, and then you're you're beholden, as you said, to the sort of the price cycle or how you know the the plants producing these things are coming on and off. <laughs> I mean, two years ago, this was a tw- so Kidman was a twenty cent stock two years ago. Now, to be fair, a year ago it was a two dollar stock. How but much now, is the bid for? Well, the price now about dollar eighty six. So I can't. And the bid is for what dollar ninety? Dollar ninety, I think. Mm. But I mean, they're buy it kind of at the highs after all the. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I do, I do, I respect West Farmers. I trust their management trying to do the right thing. It just feels like Beth Rare Earths and Lithium, like they're really chasing hard against some really hot, hot stuff. Yeah. Rather than rather than traditional West Farmers would be buy the bombed out asset, counter cyclically, try and make some money on that. Like they've been a pretty traditionally kind of conservative mob. Buying a lithium mine near an all time high, 
That's 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 aggressive. I think. If anything, I'll, I'll say this is perhaps a little less risky com- uh, compared to buying Linus. I mean, well, Linus, that's, that's Linus, also true. Linus has got sovereign risk, a big one, like yeah, a huge massive, one. Massive. So then maybe this is. But you, you know, but they do risking the portfolio by going after yeah, both. But, but 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 you know, I think they can just give me some money. And I think that will solve <laughs> a lot of the problems. That sounds like the answer. That's the answer. That's where we're going with this yeah. one. All right. Value stocks, stock market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, we just finished talking about West Farmers and, and mining. We, we talked, we promised last week we talked a little bit about mining. So I'm going to try and give a couple of minute thought on how and why investors can, if they desperately need to, invest in mining. Then I'll get you to jump in and, and let me know where I'm getting it wrong. So Here's the thing about mining, right? We know commodity prices are cyclical. We also know that commodity prices tend to be, well, more often than not, the commodity the, the commodities because they're all substitutable. So you don't care whether you get your own ore from Fortescue or BHP or Rio in Australia or Vale in South America or anybody else. A ton of iron is a ton of iron is a ton of iron, at least at the same grade. So the question comes down to, if you don't know what the price is going to be, how do you invest in a miner? Now, First thing I will say is people will tell you they know what the price is going to be or where it's going somehow. Good luck with that. Uh, I think that's a really, really aggressive and frankly risky way to try and invest. I actually call it speculation rather than investing. If you're relying on the fact that you think somehow that the iron ore price will be 20% higher in three months' time, uh, good luck with that one because I don't know anyone who can do that reliably. But if that's that's your thing, then I guess I won't – well, I can't stop you, so I won't stop you, but just be very, very careful. Here's how to think about mining. So firstly, I think we'd agree that no one needs to have mining stocks in their portfolio. For all of the talk about diversification, diversification doesn't mean two of everything. It just means a range, a broad range of risks in your portfolio so that no one company, one sector, one set of risks will bring your portfolio down. So that's what portfolio, what diversification means. It doesn't mean buy some of everything. I think the second thing I'd say is for those who want to then even despite that still do it, the safest way or the, the lowest risk way of doing it, and, and I'll say lowest, not low because they're different things. It's always going to be risky, is to buy the miner when the commodity price is near the marginal cost of production. And let's unpack that just a little bit. So if you're if you're going to buy a miner, let's let's pick an iron ore miner. The iron ore price has fluctuated between about 35 and about 100 bucks a, a ton over the last five years. Pick a number, right? So if you know the range is that big and you don't know what the price can be in the future, how do you give yourself the best chance of doing well? The answer is that the marginal cost of production is, in other words, the cost of producing the last ton of iron ore required by the market. That's the marginal cost, right? So the cheap stuff gets produced first, then the more expensive stuff, then the more expensive stuff, and the cost curve goes up. And eventually when the market wants, let's pick a a low number just to be silly, 100 tons of of iron ore in in a given year. The first 10 tons comes out at 15 bucks a ton because it's super cheap, super abundant, super available, near the port, all that kind of good stuff. The next 10 tons comes out at 20 bucks a ton, the next 10 at 30 bucks a ton in terms of the cost because it's harder and harder to get to or they're lower quality, lower scale miners for a whole lot of reasons, that's the case. The 100th ton comes out and let's say it costs 45 bucks a ton to get out of the ground. Just, just pick a number. If you know that, then effectively what you're saying is no one can produce enough tonnage at less than that price. Now, if the price is 100 bucks a ton, that $55 gap is everyone else's profit opportunity, right? Or you and I could go and grab a, grab a backhoe, drive it over to WA and start digging, and we could probably produce iron ore for less than 100 bucks a ton. So at that price, every man and his dog with a shovel and a, and a and I'm kidding, of course, but you know, a shovel and a, and a grader can get into the iron ore business. And what happens? Well, when you get a lot of supply coming into the market, the price should and will fall back. On the flip side, when the price goes to $40 a tonne, that $45 a tonne mob that's producing the last tonne stops producing. 
And so what happens? Well, the price will go up because more more supply is required and more supply will come on stream to fill that demand. This is kind of hard to do in, in, in words, but hopefully I'm doing it reasonable justice. So if you know that last ton costs 45 bucks a ton, you want to buy when the price is closer to 45 than a higher price. You want to buy at 48, 50, 52 bucks a ton because you know that as the price falls lower, Supply is going to come out of the system, which should push prices up. In other words, the closer your co- your price is to the marginal cost, the less margins being made, the greater the chance the price won't fall materially further than that for a decently long period of time. I'm going to ask you. Sense? Yeah, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Shoot, please. Just, uh, just to you know, I, make me sound I, smart. I have made no mining investment until <laughs> that that has actually made me money. Right, right, right. So uh, clearly, I'm missing a trick or two here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, couple question number one yep. is. How I mean, I mean, if if you knew the marginal cost, mm-hmm. a, maybe knowing it is difficult, mm-hmm. and maybe the people, be, yes. uh, people at West Farmers should know the uh, <laughs> the mar- uh, marginal should. cost of mining. They if they know the or, or people at Rio or BHP, mm-hmm. and they should therefore be the richest people because they should be able to buy when it is at the marginal cost. Yep. Uh, the stocks, and and then basically, so uh, you know, now, so historically, by the way, BHP has done exactly that. But keep going. Okay, so that's part one of my question. How yep. do you know what is the marginal cost mm-hmm. of a particular type of mining? Yes, and B, how do you know when to exit? Yep, great questions. And this is where, frankly, the answers to those are as uncertain as you are in insinuating, and exactly why we don't invest in mining, generally speaking, because in some of these cases, buying is actually the easier decision. Selling is really, really, really hard. Mm. So. How do you know the marginal cost? The answer comes down to industry knowledge, and that can either be private knowledge or public knowledge. In the case of iron ore, for example, it's relatively easy to find the marginal cost of production. There's plenty of data out there. You kind of know roughly what that is. But the easiest way to do it, frankly, and iron ore is super easy because the the market is um, it's relatively dominated by a few big players. Rio, Fortescue, BHP, Vale, their, their costs are relatively well-known. They're all, all in-cash costs, as they're called. And if they're producing the, the lion's share, almost they're almost the marginal producers, not quite, but you get a pretty good sense of where that is. I throw in a couple of others, you can get to that marginal cost pretty quickly. When you start talking about lithium or something else, this is when it gets really, really tough. And back to your West Farmers question, that's why I think they're nuts, because this market is not a stable market. We don't know what the long-term... You know, the long-term demand of iron ore is relatively stable, right? It'll grow at a couple of percent a year for the foreseeable future, because... All of the iron ore kind of um, market, the, the need for iron ore, whether it's steel making, whether it's whatever, that's already kind of factored in. That's not going to change dramatically anytime soon. Now, the lithium market, frankly, everyone's excited about electric cars. And so a lot of people are going to pile into mining lithium because they feel like that's the future. In fact, the larger cost probably going to come down over time. That's you got to be really, really careful. So I have a third question for you. Shoot. Um, how is there a role for, say, and maybe there is, mm. technology? for um, reducing the marginal cost. I mean, maybe today it is $20 yeah. a ton for, say, iron ore. Maybe, yes, yes. maybe you know, five years from now, it's actually 15 Yes, totally. And, and, and over time, traditionally, the marginal cost has been relatively stable even as volume's grown for exactly that reason. Hmm. Because people have got... And it's, when you say technology, it's absolutely technology. It's actually more... At least historically, it's been more production scale than pure technology. Okay. So the incremental, the incremental return from digging an extra ton out of a ground of an existing mine is much less than the average cost, right? Because you've got to put the infrastructure in place, you build the buildings, you buy the machines, you do whatever you're doing. Those those kind of fixed costs are relatively fixed, funnily enough, as, as you'd expect. The cost of the land, all that kind of stuff is fixed. The physical incremental cost, the variable cost of an extra ton of iron ore is pretty low because all you got to do is you know, drive the machine for an extra hour, pay the workers for an extra hour. You don't buy a second machine. You don't buy, pay more, put more buildings up. You don't buy a second plot of land. 
you just keep digging. And so that that does change scale-wise. Technology, absolutely. So self-driving trucks, self-driving trains are absolutely lowering the cost of production. Um, better refining techniques, absolutely lower the cost of, of production. So those things are absolutely real. Traditionally, because there's a huge, huge, huge volume operations, it tends to be scale rather than tech that makes the biggest difference. So if you compare you know, BHP and Rio getting it out of the ground at 15 bucks a ton, like they're just super, super cheap wow. producers. But the smaller ones, the Atlas Iron of, of, the, of the world, um, those kind of guys, frankly, go out of business in the bad times because their costs are so much higher. They're mm. smaller. They have less technology. They're simply less able to scale those benefits. And frankly, iron ore, just to give a quick, a quick tangent, often described as a transport business with an iron ore mine at the end rather mm. than a true mining business. Right. The cost of getting it to the port and to the customer is, is largely high, higher cost than actually the digging out of the ground because okay. it's so abundant, so available. So for what it's worth, that's the that's the way to think about it. You asked about when to sell, and just to wrap this up, the answer is no one knows because you, you're if you're buying it, you're buying it hoping to make more money in the future. Mm. How much higher does the price have to go? If I was going to do this and I don't, I'd be picking a I'd be selling opportunistically when I'd made a decent amount of money on on, on the basis of the further the the price gets away from the marginal cost, the lower your probable risk risk adjusted returns. If you like, in other words, if the iron price so the, say the marginal cost is forty bucks, at fifty bucks a ton price, you're making ten dollars a ton. The downside is reasonably small because it's only going to fall back a little bit before it hits that marginal cost. Mm-hmm. When it gets to 80 bucks, then you kind of say, well, the chance of going to 120 versus going back to 40 starts to mm. look a little bit like more like right. even money. And so I think, um, again, I'm not. Uh, we don't recommend them and I don't know that we ever would, but certainly we'd be looking for once, once the price had moved materially away from the marginal cost, we'd probably say, well, we might be leaving money on the table. We might not. But the thesis would be effectively almost a value investing thesis, which is simply when I get a re-rating, to use a horrible term, in other words, if the price goes up, great, tick that box, sell and move on, hopefully bank some profits. That's how I'd be doing if I was going to invest in mining companies. This is, this is great, great education for me. You know you know when I'm going to buy mining? I'm going <laughs> to buy me. mining when uh, Jeff Bezos starts uh, <laughs> uh, staffs mining lithium yes. in outer space. Oh, is he going to do that? Uh, maybe. <laughs> when he starts, well, he has an outer space You heard couple. it first, fools? Yeah. So that's when I'm going to buy mining. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I'm, I'm probably with you. I'm going to say I went really close to recommending. A, I think I might have said a gold mining company for Share Advisor a few years ago. Evolution Mining was the company. Um, its costs were really low. The the price of gold was much higher than that, and it was mining Australian dollars. The gold price in US dollars. It looked pretty attractive. It would have been a, it would have been a great investment in hindsight. But again, this is one of those stories where if you just look at a single example and say, "See, I could have been a great mining investor." The much chance I would have lost money on a million other things is pretty high as well. So sometimes it's better just to frankly stick within your circle of competence. Mining companies very, very rarely as a whole, as a group, make money for investors over the long term. It's often a sector just simply best avoided. Great. Mate, that's it. That's it. We've come to the end of this week's podcast. So sad. No time for mailbag. But the good news is next week, all mailbag all the time. Oh, that's awesome. I'm so looking forward you, to that. Make one. sure you tune in next week for us. It's going to be pretty exciting. If you have any questions for us on our mailbag, of course, you can get in touch with us. Info at fool.com.au is our email address. Or hit us up at Twitter at TMFScottP, at Anirban Mahanti, or at The Motley Fool AU. That's probably the simplest one of the lot. Um, hit us up with questions, comments, feedback. You can jump on our Facebook page as well with any way you want to get in touch with us. We love to hear your comments, feedback, questions, ideas, suggestions. And a little bit of praise never goes astray, does it, mate? Definitely not. <laughs> That's it. That does wrap us up for this week's Motley Fool Money. But before we go, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast, and you should, through iTunes or if you're a little more educated, your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Leave us a review. Tell your friends. Let more people discover the wonderful Android-powered goodness that is 
Motley Fool Manny. Can I say that? <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> he's given up. He's given up. <laughs> We're almost at the end. He's just going to sail on the sunset on this one. <laughs> and don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Mailbay Enhanced Foolish Goodness. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.